Part 5 of Two Essays on Military History, Strategy, and Tactics, Mountain Warfare 1909 and Naval Strategy 1917 by Various. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part 5, British Navy, Chapter 2, The Center of Sea Power. Of speedy victory let no man doubt, our worst works past, now we have found them out. Behold, their navy does at anchor lie, and they are ours, for now they cannot fly. Andrew Marvel, 1653. Of all the theatres of the war, on sea or land, the North Sea is the most important. It is vital to all the operations of the Allies. Command of its waters and its outlets is the thing that matters most. In that sea is the center of naval influence. It is the key of all the hostilities. From either side of it, the great protagonists in the struggle look at one another. There, the great constriction of the blockade is exerted upon Germany. It is the mare clausum against which she protests. Geography is there in the scales against her. She rebels against British sea supremacy. The freedom of the seas is, therefore, her claim, though she is endeavouring to qualify to be the tyrant of them. Her only outlook towards the outer seas is from the bite of Heligoland, and the fringe of coast behind the East Frisian Islands, or from the Baltic, if her ships pass the Sound, or the Belt, issuing into the North Sea through the Skagger Rack but they cannot reach the ocean except through the North Passage, where the Grand Fleet holds the guard. Only isolated raiders, bent upon predatory enterprise, have stealthily gone that way after nightfall. In the southern gate of the North Sea, through the Straits of Dover and in the Channel, the way is barred. The guns of Dover, the Dover Patrol, and certain other deterrents forbid the enemy to adventure in that direction. The new engines of naval warfare, the mine, submarine, airship, and aeroplane, found their first and greatest use in the North Sea. Only by employing craft which hide beneath the water, and on rare occasions, by destroyers which seek the cover of darkness for local forays, have the Germans been able to exert their efforts in any waters outside the North Sea. At the beginning of the war they had raiding cruisers in the Pacific and Atlantic, and a detached squadron in the Far East. But the British fleet reached out to those regions, and aided by the warships of Japan and France, it drove every vestige of German naval power from the oceans. In the North Sea, therefore, sea power has exerted its greatest, most vital, and most far-reaching effect. There the Germans, if they had possessed the power, could have struck a blow which, if successful for them, would have proved a mortal stroke at the British Empire, and would have rendered useless all the efforts of the Allies. Millions of men, incalculable volumes of guns, munitions, and stores of every imaginable kind for the use of the greatest armies ever set in the field, have entered the French ports solely because the Grand Fleet holds the guard in the North Sea. The whole face of the world would have been changed by German naval victory. England would have been subjected by invasion and famine. 
If the heart of the empire had been struck, what would have been the future of its members? If sea communication with the Allies had been cut, what would have been their fate at the hands of the victors? The attacks of sallying cruisers and destroyers upon the coast towns of England, the tip-and-run raids, as they have been called, and the visits of bomb-dropping airships and aeroplanes are the signs of the naval impotence of Germany. The situation in the North Sea is, therefore, of absorbing interest. It may be studied chiefly from the two points of view of the strategy of the opposing fleets and the exercise of the blockade. There is a peculiarity in naval warfare, which is not found in warfare upon land, that a belligerent can withdraw his naval forces entirely from the theater of war by retaining them, as with a threat or in a position of weakness, behind the guns of his shore defenses. Nothing of the kind is possible with land armies. A general can always find his enemy and attack or invest him, and if successful, drive him back or cause him to surrender and occupy the territory he has held. The Germans have chosen the reticent strategy of the sea. They have never come out to make a fight to a finish, to put the matter to the touch, to gain or lose it all. The animus pugnandi is wanting to their fleet. It was necessary that they should do something. They could not lie forever stagnant at Kiel and Wilhelmshaven. They could keep their officers and men in training by making brief cruises in and outside the Bight of Heligoland. They might, with luck, meet some portion of the Grand Fleet, detached and at a disadvantage. In any case, they were bold enough to take their chances on occasions, always with their fortified ports and mined waters and their submarines under their lee. They might succeed in reducing British superiority by the attrition of some encounters. Such was the genesis of the Dogger Bank battle of January 24, 1915, when that gallant officer, Sir David Beatty, inflicted a severe defeat upon Admiral Hipper and drove him back in flight with the loss of the Blücher and much other injury. The same causes brought the German high sea fleet under Admiral Scheer into the great conflict, first with Sir David Beatty, and then with the main force of the Grand Fleet, under command of Sir John Jellicoe, on May 31, 1916. The events of the great engagement of the Jutland Bank will not be related here. All that it is necessary to note is that the Germans had so chosen their time that they were able to avoid decisive battle with Sir John Jellicoe's fleet by retreating in the failing light of the day, and that their adventure availed them nothing to break the blockade or otherwise to modify the impotent position in which they are placed at sea. That action operated to the disadvantage of England and her allies in no degree whatever. The superiority of the British fleet as a fighting engine had been placed beyond dispute. The mine and the submarine have put an end to the system of naval blockade as practiced by St. Vincent and Cornwallis. No fleet can now lie off or within striking range of an enemy's port. 
battleships cannot be risked against submarines acting either as torpedo craft or mine layers nor against swift destroyers at night that is the explanation of the situation which has arisen in the north sea the blockade is necessarily of a distant kind there are no places on the british coasts where the grand fleet could be located except those in which it lies and from which it issues to sweep the north sea periodically the first essential is to control the enemy's communications which is done effectively at the north passage between the orkneys and shetlands and the norwegian coast and at the straits of dover if the enemy desired a final struggle for supremacy at sea with all its tremendous consequences he could have it but he can be attacked only when he is accessible there shall be neither sickness nor death which shall make us yield until this service be ended wrote howard in fifteen eighty eight that is the spirit of the british navy to-day but then the spanish armada was at sea it was not hiding behind its shore defense be it noted that the germans thus hiding themselves enjoy a certain opportunity of undertaking raiding operations in the north sea it is not a difficult thing to rush a force of destroyers on a dark night against some point in an extended line of patrols and effect a little damage somewhere what advantage the germans hope to gain by such proceedings is difficult to discover the magnificence of the work of the british patrol flotillas and the auxiliary patrols must be recognized in the north sea these are subsidiary services of the grand fleet day and night in every weather in summer heats and winter blasts and blizzards when icy seas wash the boats from stem to stern and the cold penetrates to the bone these patrols are at work the records of heroism at sea in these services have never been surpassed and england owes a very great deal to the men who came to her service the mercantile marine has given its vessels to the state from the luxurious liner to the fishing trawler and officers and men have come in who have rendered priceless services the trawlers have carried on their perilous work of bringing up the strange harvest of horned mines by the score the patrol boats have examined suspicious vessels controlled sea traffic and watched the sea passages the destroyer flotillas have been constantly at work and ready at any time to bring raiding enemy forces to action the royal navy air service has never relaxed its activity and has engaged in countless combats it has sometimes been wondered why the grand fleet did not take some aggressive action why did it not attack the north german sea-coast or root out the pestilent hornet's nest of zeebrugge which the enemy by internal communications impregnable to sea-power had provided with the most powerful guns besides defending it by great minefields this matter requires to be examined naval history abounds with evidence that to attack coast defenses is not the proper or even the permissible work of warships it is the business of military forces though naval forces may often assist and even give the means of victory moreover what was once possible is not possible now would nelson have attacked the french fleet at the nile if it had lain under the powerful guns of these days and behind minefields 
through the secret passage of which submarines could have issued to destroy him it would be absurd to compare nelson's attack upon a line of block ships and rafts at copenhagen covered by a few forts armed with old smoothbores to an attack upon coast positions defended by modern guns when old sir charles napier was in the baltic in eighteen fifty four he was denounced at home because he did not destroy kronstadt or helsingfors he rightly refused to play his enemy's game by endangering his ships captain afterwards admiral sir b j sullivan who was with the fleet put the situation quite clearly in a letter written at the time a military operation was really required then as it would be now to accomplish such a task we know that two guns have beaten off two large ships with great loss had nelson been here with thirty english ships he would have blockaded the gulf for years without thinking of attacking such fortresses to get at ships inside brest toulon and cadiz were probably much weaker than these places i suppose there will be an outcry at home about doing nothing here but we might as well try to reach the moon but the navy has never left the belgian coast secure from attack it has never lost its aggressive spirit it has attacked from the ship and the air the seaplanes of the royal naval air service spotted for the guns when the monitors were bombarding bombs have repeatedly been dropped on othden zeebrugge and the places in the rear when the guns were silent there were reasons for it a conjoint naval and military expedition was required the enemy began to feel his hold on the coast precarious continued operations by sea and land might compel him to relax his grasp ships may not attack places defended by big guns minefields and submarines and destroyers issuing from secret passages through them but it is certain the british naval offensive will never be paralyzed such is the magnificent work of the british navy in blockading the german fleet molesting the enemy's coast positions and controlling his communications with the oceans the commercial blockade by which the enemy's supplies and commodities are cut off and his exports paralyzed is too large a subject to be dealt with here the object is to bring the full measure of sea power to bear in crushing the national life of the enemy it is vital but silent work of the navy and does not lend itself to discussion or description questions of contraband and the right and method of search which arise from the blockade caused discussions with the united states before the states came into the war the only object of the british navy and the foreign office was to put an end to the transit of the enemy's commodities and to do so with the utmost consideration for the interest of neutrals and complete protection for the lives of the officers and crews in their ships and in the examining ships for these reasons neutral vessels were taken into port for examination safe from the attentions of the enemy's submarines one great hope of the germans was that the neutrals would become more and more exasperated with england they remembered that the war of eighteen twelve arose from this very cause 
but they were completely disappointed in all such hopes and they themselves by interfering with the free navigation of other countries brought the united states into the war against them the blockade work of the examination service and of the armed boarding steamers has been extremely hazardous it has called for the greatest qualities of seamanship because conducted in every condition of weather and when storm and fog have made it extremely perilous to approach the neutral vessels which moreover have sometimes proved to be armed enemies in disguise hundreds of vessels have been brought into port by the navy in these northern waters sleepless vigilance has been required and the highest skill of the sea in every possible condition of the service while the seaman has become a statesman in his dealings with the neutral shipmaster it has been for the navy to bring the ships into port and for other authorities to inquire into their status and to take them before the prize court if required the german high sea fleet having failed the submarine campaign was instituted and began chiefly in the north sea it has never answered the expectations of its authors it has not changed the strategic situation in any degree whatever great damage has been inflicted upon british interests and invaluable ships and cargoes have been sunk and officers and men cast adrift in situations of ruthless hardship the tale of the sea has never had a more terrible record nor one lighted by so much noble self-sacrifice and unfailing courage end of part five